then I'm perusing the article and I realize, you know, there's this story of a, a black police officer who was undercover infiltrating a black activist group. And I think, oh, and then there's my dad's name. Like, it's my dad. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know, no one ever told me this. I mean, I knew he was a police officer. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know was that nobody else on that balcony, like nobody in that photograph knew he was a police officer. They thought he was a completely different person. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. This episode centers on a photo etched into our collective memory, a black and white image by Joseph Lowe capturing the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis on April 4, 1968. In the image, King lies on the second floor balcony of the motel in a pool of blood, surrounded by aides who are urgently pointing into the distance from where the gunshot came. A single man kneels at King's side, applying pressure to his wound with a white cloth. This man is Morel Mac McCullough, the father of my guest, Lita McCullough Stiletsky, and the subject of her recent book, The Kneeling Man, My Father's Life as a Black Spy Who Witnessed the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Lita didn't learn of her father's connection to this historical moment until she was a teenager, dismayed to find his name mentioned in a Memphis Commercial Appeal article she was reading about the assassination. The newspaper article detailed that Mac had been at the Lorraine Motel that terrible day on an undercover assignment with the Memphis Police Department, for whom he was spying on a local Black activism group called The Invaders. Growing up, Lita knew little of her father's work. When she was 11, her father revealed to her that he worked for the CIA, but had never made any mention of being present at King's assassination. Abiding by the motto of don't ask, don't tell, that so many families follow, she decided not to address it. But Lita remained curious about what she'd read, sometimes googling her father's name and finding it in online conspiracy theories that the assassination of King had been government-directed and that Mac, in his work as a double agent, had been a conspirator. She finally asked her father to tell her more about his experience with the assassination when she was in her early 30s. He presented her with 17 typed pages recounting his entire life, from his boyhood in Tibbs, Mississippi, to his experience in the military, and ultimately the details of his work for the Memphis PD. Lita, who pursued a career as a lawyer, took several years to bring herself to read what her father had written. She couldn't make it beyond stories of his painful childhood in the Jim Crow South without breaking down in tears. When she finally did read them a few years later, her father's story compelled her to start interviewing and taping him about his life. 
The kneeling man tells the story of a man, quote, split in two, as Lita describes her father, one who was drawn to the structure of police work and one who was rejected by his white colleagues, one who grieved for King and one who agreed to a polygraph test from the Justice Department in 1998 as part of a wrongful death suit bought by the King family. The book, Lita tells me in our interview, is an attempt to tell her father's story with the care it deserves and to better understand him for who he is, not split in two, but completely. Here is my conversation with Lita. So thank you for coming on and being our first episode back from hiatus. <laughs> I am so honored. Thank you for thinking of me. Of course. I want to actually start in more of a chronological discussion of your father. Tell us a little bit about where he grew up in his life and his childhood. Yes. So he grew up in the Mississippi Delta for the most part, northern Mississippi, not very far from Memphis, geographically at least, but socially a world away. So <laughs> we're talking 1940s and 1950s. That Jim Crow, Mississippi. And with that, of course, comes all of the brutality, all of the oppression and dehumanization that was uh, part and parcel of that system. As one of 12 and on the younger side of the 12, my father grew up you know, surrounded by siblings, brothers and sisters, and each of the older siblings, particularly, it was really more the girls, the, the older uh, sisters were given charge of the younger brothers. And so that way, the parents, Walter and Lucille, were able to kind of run the household. And so um, his older sister, they called her Shag, was his minder and custodian. And so that early childhood is a time that my father remembers as a wonderful time. I mean, he sees it through this lens of nostalgia, kind of like the TV series, The Waltons, if folks remember that. Um, as oftentimes uh, we do, looking back on the past, we have it, we see things in these glowing terms. And so he sees it as kind of an idyllic time, despite the circumstances going on in society, you know, growing up uh, in this family uh, on rented land. They had uh, a farm where they grew sorghum and they grew um, cotton, among other things. They had a rented house. Everybody pitched in from the moment that the children could walk and had some dexterity. They were pitching in around the farm. They were picking cotton. You know, they were doing all kinds of tasks. So he remembers from his earliest days up until around age five as a really beautiful time in his life with his family. But then there is a sea change that happens when his mother dies when he's around five years old. She is walking through the house and one day she just collapses. She is taken to the hospital and thus begins a period, a long period of illness and ultimately death. And with her death came the destabilization of that household. Walter, his father, sinks into a depression and alcoholism. With Lucille gone, there's no one there to kind of help keep the household running in an orderly way or even to make sure that the kids are going to school like they're supposed to be. There's no one there to patch the clothes of the kids. And then there are the hospital bills from Lucille's illness. And so there's economic hardship as well as just the sickness and death of his mother. 
And so they lose this land, they lose the farm, the family ends up sharecropping and moving from place to place. And then my father and his younger brother, Floyd, end up missing school for a long period of time. I mean, I'm talking like a couple of years, simply because, you know, not only is there no one there to make sure that they're going to school as they're supposed to, but they don't have decent clothes to even wear to school. No one is keeping them shod. Like they don't have uh, shoes. They don't have money for shoes. Their clothes are full of holes. And so they're, they're running around outside aimlessly, just really in a very unstable situation for a while until Walter, his father, meets Miss Ethel, who mm-hmm. becomes his stepmother, and she kind of writes the ship. But um, this time of his life goes from stability to instability and desperate poverty and not having enough. This was very much formative for him in terms of always seeking out order, you know, in his life and looking for that stability. Also, you know, he was a very intelligent, a young man who loved school. And once he got back into school, he found that he was a great student and he wanted to pursue education to its highest levels. He wanted to go to college, but there was no money there to do that. And so His only um, realistic option was the GI Bill and enlisting in the military. And so he does that as well. And so he is a a man who came up out of some of the roughest circumstances, I think you could imagine, in uh, 20th century America. And I think that kind of beginning became um, the launching place for this very uncanny journey that he ultimately took. The fact that he also, you know, he enlisted and and you talk about this in the book to, as you mentioned, to go the GI Bill to be able to go to school. And yet even even when your dad enlisted, he realized that he had kind of been lied to by the recruiter and that it wasn't it wasn't a, a smooth shot right into college after that. Exactly. And I think, you know, that interaction that he has with the army recruiter who's selling him on, you know, enlisting in the army and telling him, oh, well, you can just continue with high school. You know, nothing's going to change. And that was just so far from the truth. I think that's interesting because um, it just shows this lack of care with which he is treated at the same time that his services are necessary. And I can see echoes of that throughout his story. In reading the book and looking at everything that you sort of piece together about your dad, you describe it as him being um, a person split in two, you know, having grown up facing incredible adversity, then joining the military. And fighting for a country that was not fighting for him back home, you know, comes back and then joins the police force um, and realizes that it's an uphill battle there as well. Can you tell us a little bit about his experience joining the police force and, and the sort of difficulties that he faced there? Yes. So, you know, my dad's um, entree, I guess, into law enforcement was just (laughs) the product of this journey that had led him through the military. And when he was in the military, he was assigned a military police school. He became a military policeman. So when he came out of the army in 1967, that really was the only, I guess you could call it professional background that he had. And (laughs) 
he comes out of the army, comes to Memphis, cannot get a job. No one will hire him. And um, so he ends up working these odd jobs, uh, kind of low wage uh, manual labor jobs until he is riding to work with his cousin one day and a police department recruiting ad comes on the radio. And it doesn't even cross his mind, you know, to apply to become a Memphis police officer. You know, he doesn't think there's any way that they're going to hire him, you know, to be a police officer. He couldn't get any kind of job, let alone something like that. But it's his cousin who encourages him to apply because he has this background as a military police officer. And so really largely to placate his cousin, he says, "Okay, well, I will just I'll drop you off at work and then I'll run by the police department headquarters and pick up the application when he thinks he's going to take it home and fill it out and bring it back. Well, it's not nearly so simple, but through this long and winding series of events that present challenges, but he is able to surmount them, he ends up on the force, goes through the academy and comes out as a a patrolman. And I say men because I think there, I'm trying to remember if there was even one commissioned woman police officer. I believe there was one at that time. So they largely were men. Comes out as a patrolman, December 1967. And he's just a regular uniformed police officer doing foot patrols. As a rookie, he's matched with a partner, a white man, Officer Clark. And Officer Clark, through their interactions, going from foot patrol to then car patrols in a couple of neighborhoods, Officer Clark makes it clear that Mac, my father, is, um, I mean, he may wear the uniform and he may have a badge, but in fact, he uses these words that, you know, you think your uniform is just as blue as mine, but it ain't. So... You know, there's this, it's like an asterisk by his name. As a Black man who is in law enforcement, he really was not considered to be as much of a law enforcement officer as a white person. He just wasn't. And and that was also reflected in the ways in which the assignments were given to police officers. Black officers were not assigned to patrol white neighborhoods. That's communicating the idea that you don't have authority over these folks, these white people. You can patrol the black neighborhoods, but we don't want you in our white neighborhoods. And so that's his experience coming right out of the police academy. Now, he's not out of the academy very long before the historic sanitation strike um, breaks out in Memphis in February 1968. So, I mean, really, it's just a couple of months where, you know, he's doing foot patrol during the holidays in a shopping center and then, you know, car patrols for a little bit. And then once the sanitation workers go on strike and the city decides to assign police officers to escort these scabs who are driving the garbage trucks, that kind of turns things upside down. These police officers, uh, including my father, are assigned to work extra 12-hour shifts escorting the scabs and guarding landfills and things like that. So once that happens, that is what sets the scene for what comes next, which is his being asked to go to the strike supporters' mass meetings in plain clothes, essentially spy (laughs) on these folks, Listen in on what they're planning to do, you know, and if they're planning to cause any kind of disruptions or interfere with the collection of the garbage. And that ends up evolving into his becoming a mole 
in a Black activist group that is involved in strike support efforts. And so, you know, it all kind of organically, in a way, flows out of these efforts by law enforcement to try to get an inside view on what the strike supporters were doing and planning to do. And that changes everything for him in terms of being a police officer. As you mentioned, this is the point where he does have to split himself in two. He has to make a break with his normal life, who he is. And mind you, I mean, he's been seen around the city in uniform. He's not from Memphis, so at least that kind of helps him in terms of being able to do these undercover assignments. But he's got to stop um, visiting his relatives like he used to. You know, all the folks in those communities where his relatives lived and where he used to frequent, they knew he was a police officer. So he had to make a break with that life. And he's got to become, you know, this invader. You know, he ends up getting named the Minister of Transportation for this activist group, the invaders. And what this does is it also separates him from the police force, in a sense, because he can't go down to headquarters. He's not in contact with his colleagues. Now he's he's an invader. And so it, it gives him... Uh, a really different experience as a patrolman than he would have had had he remained on typical patrols. He really has to abandon his, you know, quote unquote, real life and become this creation of law enforcement to do the job he's been assigned to do. Yeah, it's I mean, you you're such a a wonderful writer and there's so many just sort of exhilarating slash, you know, straight out of what we what we know from watching movies and TV shows of the general public of, you know, your father in this sort of whirlwind, one second he's patrolling a strip mall with a shitty racist partner and uh, going through that. And then this next second, it's, okay, now you're going to infiltrate this group called the Invaders. Um, We're going to give you the same name. They kind of kept your dad's story pretty similar. He, He went by the same name. He, you know, had to move, obviously, couldn't be in contact, as you said, with relatives. Tell us a little more, tell the listeners a little more about who the invaders were and why, why did the Memphis police see them beyond just, you know, historical, like, white paranoia? You know, as you also weave into the story, the backstory of, of Hoover and the FBI's obsession with all of all of the activism that was going on. Tell us a little bit about who the invaders were and why they wanted your dad there. Yes. So the invaders were a smallish group of young uh, black men and women. And the group was really one of, you know, numerous, I guess you could call them satellite groups or groups that were under the umbrella of a parent organization called the Black Organizing project, um, which had, you know, as its aims to instill pride among Black people in the city, particularly young Black people, whom they felt were the most marginalized, you know, in the Black community, being young, not having money. They felt like they were not listened to by any of the establishment, certainly not the white establishment, and even among the Black establishment, you know, the preachers, the folks who were at the helms of these uh, community organizations, they felt they were completely um, kind of cast to the side, not listened to. And yet they thought having lived that experience of marginalization, 
who better than to bring the concerns of the marginalized, I guess, to to the public's attention and also do something about it. They understood better, they thought, than anybody, you know, what the problems were and how they needed to be addressed. And so they wanted to kind of work with the youth to have cultural programs, education about Black history, and just, you know, instill this sense of Black pride. And they kind of uh, remind me of the Black Panthers in a sense. I mean, especially just the aesthetics of the group. You know, they had the swagger. They had the afros and the leather jackets and jackets with uh, invaders littered across the back. So, you know, as this satellite group of, of the Black Organizing Project, they were sometimes kind of cast as the enforcement arm of the Black Organizing Project. But the reality my father found was, you know, this was probably a couple dozen young uh, Black men and women who got together. They talked a lot of far left politics from socialism to communism. You know, they read Franz Fanon. They read mm -hmm. Chairman Mao. They talked mm -hmm. radical politics. But, you know, at the end of the day, they were smoking weed. <laughs> drinking Robitussin AC, you know, with, with cops here and maybe, you know, dealing with little drugs here and there, but ultimately harmless, not a group that the city needed to be worried about in terms of causing some big social upheaval or even radicalizing the strike supporters as the city was concerned about. Now, in terms of why the city and law enforcement in particular, why they were worried about the invaders was beyond the fact of, like you said, you know, these are just the young Black radicals. This was the height of the Cold War. And so, you know, there was sort of this domino theory type thinking that if communism gets any kind of toehold in any group, then this is a danger. This is like a fire that you have to put out before it becomes this big conflagration. I mean, which really was sort of the origin of uh, the FBI's counterintelligence program that ultimately targeted activist groups and uh, targeted uh, Dr. King. There was this, I would really say, pretext of trying to root out communism. So there was this thought in law enforcement that, you know, if folks are talking radical politics, that's got to be watched and that's really got to be stamped out before it becomes something bigger and more disruptive. Right, right. And so as you as you mentioned before, like your so your dad, I mean, he, and you open you open the book by kind of highlighting that he was only a police officer for 17 months before he finds himself at the Lorraine Motel this terrible day that MLK is killed. Why were the invaders at the Lorraine? Why was your dad there that day with King? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It unfolded so quickly because, yeah. you know, what was it? December 1967, he's graduating, you know, getting his badge. And yeah. then April 1968, he's at the locus of one of the most tragic murders in world history. How did this happen? Um, so... Uh, as an invader, he ends up embedding himself in the group, gaining their confidence, which wasn't difficult, which points to the fact that they were harmless. But uh, he is almost immediately named their minister of transportation because he is one of the only ones who has a car. 
And so he's doing that job of driving people around. I mean, he drives them back and forth um, to do whatever, you know, if they want to go down on Beale Street and pick up some cough syrup or whatever, he does it. And so he's able to kind of listen in on the conversations and observe exactly what they're doing. Well, it was on um, April 4th, 1968, that he's being the Minister of Transportation. He um, starts the day as he ordinarily would start any day. He gets up, he goes over to Claiborne Temple, which is one of the main nerve centers of the strike supporters' efforts. And he's just looking around, trying to see, you know, what's going on here today? Who is here? And he encounters a couple of young women, college students, who are activists supporting the sanitation strike. And also a couple of Dr. King's aides. Um, uh, one of them is, or actually one of Dr. King's aides at that point. It was uh, baby Jesus, James Orange, who is looking for a pair of four-button overalls to wear to a demonstration that Dr. King is set to have in Memphis. And so, you know, the overalls, if you go back and look at, you know, the photographs and the footage from these types of uh, marches and things, I mean, that is kind of that look the Duriger look, you know, for these kinds of marches. And so he's trying to find these overalls. And my dad is is the person to drive him around all over town to find them. And so my father and is driving baby Jesus, the two uh, college students, you know, drive together and they go all over town to try to find these overalls are unsuccessful in doing so come back to Claiborne Temple where they encounter another of Dr. King's aides, uh, James Bevel. And by this time, it's getting close to dinner time. And so they decide to go over to the Lorraine, which is where Dr. King and his Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference folks are um, staying. And also they've gotten a room for the invaders there because uh, these two groups are in talks about how they're going to conduct this demonstration. And the invaders are set to kind of act as marshals and make sure that this march does go peacefully. Um, because this is in the wake of another march Dr. King held that ended in a lot of disorder and looting and things. It was a huge black eye. And so everyone is set on this not happening again. So this is why, you know, my father and the college students end up going over to the Lorraine. And so they get there, the sun is setting and on the balcony, is Dr. King, which is a spectacle, you know, and he is leaning on the railing. He's talking to a crowd of people who are gathered below in the parking lot. And he's just kind of having a good time, just uh, conversing with folks. And so my dad parks, college students park, they get out of their cars. And moments after that, there is a thunderous boom and Dr. King falls. And so this photograph that's on the cover of the book, this famous photograph of the assassination is what happens next. Because my father, you know, hearing the boom, recognizing it as a gunshot and seeing Dr. King falls, you know, his immediate instinct, unlike most folks, is to run into this, you know, active shooter situation and try to administer first aid. And so he runs up an external staircase and uh, drops to a crawl passes a cleaning cart that has towels on it, grabs a towel and uses that towel to apply pressure to Dr. King's wound. And that is why he winds up at this um, at this place at this time. 
I mean, that photo is so, there's there's so many things happening in the photo and, it, and it's, you know, he, the king is on the ground, he's, he's bleeding, you can see blood around his head. I mean, everyone has seen this photo and people are, the people around him, his aides are pointing up to where the gun, they, they think the gunshot came from or the sound came from. And so it's, there's this total diversion in the photo of everyone looking away while your father is sort of alone with him. It's such a powerful image. He's, he's alone holding a towel to his head while everyone else is, is looking away. And what I love about your story is that I think a lot of people might be able to relate to the fact that this wasn't a story <clears throat> that you grew up hearing really at all. You didn't even really know that your dad um, had been there or any of his involvement in this until you were in high school. So, you know, he has this experience. He's in, he goes on to, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. He goes on to work in, in narcotics and then he goes on to work for the CIA, at which point I think, you know, you're like 11, 12. He's very direct with you and tells you he works for the CIA. Which you, I love that you describe as feeling like sort of like a badge of honor that he would tell you that when, you know, you're 11. That's your secret. And he tells your brother too. He trusts you guys. Um, and you're in high school and you're in a class. And, and what happens next that you realize that, oh, my God, that's my dad. So I'm reading the newspaper, the Memphis Commercial Appeal. You know, which happens also to be where my mom works. But it's a newspaper household. Like, I read the newspaper daily. I would come home from high school and, like, read the paper, which I don't know how typical that was, but that's what I did. And so I'm paging through the paper. And, you know, I see, I come across this story where they're talking about, you know, the assassination. And I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. And I'm perusing the article. And I realize, you know, there's this story of a, a Black, police officer who was undercover infiltrating a black activist group and I think oh and then there's my dad's name like it's my dad it's I'm just like what (laughs) you know no one ever told me this I mean I knew he was a police officer Mm -hmm. what I didn't know was that nobody else on that balcony like nobody in that photograph knew he was a police officer. They thought he was a completely different person. They thought he was an invader. Mm-hmm. And so when I read that, I was so shocked. And I was really, I was embarrassed because by this time, you know, I was developing political sensibilities and I had been reading about the Black Panthers. And so that was kind of my frame of reference for all of this. You know, I had read about Huey Newton, whom I deeply admired. I'd read one of the memoirs of a a former Black Panther. And so to find out that my father was kind of on the other side of these kinds of activist efforts, folks who were fighting for Black liberation. Mm -hmm. And here he is actually listening in on what they're doing and reporting back to law enforcement about that. I had a hard time with that. And then, you know, it's all in the paper. Like, I just thought, is somebody going to see this and ask me about it? Like, what do I even say? You know, I just thought the best thing that can happen is if no one ever connects me to any of this, like ever. (laughs) I think it's just so common for dads to to not share huge, huge things like this. And 
that there is a certain amount, you know, you mentioned your embarrassment, but I think, you know, you bring so much compassion and understanding. And as you said at the beginning of our interview, you know, on the one hand, I imagine that there was a part of you that wondered why, why work for, you know, a law enforcement, why work against people that were, were fighting for civil rights, but that also that he probably really craved that order from his childhood. And, and it also was an entry point into a career that he wasn't offered because of what was going on at the time. You're framing this against the fact that, like, his experience with being a police officer himself was racist. He had a partner that told him they didn't have the same uniform. In a way, he realized that if he wasn't in that uniform, that he would be, quote, just another black man, as you put it in the book, to an officer. But your dad, in in his work, had a front row to this formative important time was in the world of civil rights and and wondering if you, if you can read about being in the him being in the room listening to MLK speak. Yes. The evening of April 3rd, Max squeezed in with the crush of people at Mason Temple to hear King address a rally in support of the sanitation strike. The weather was awful. Rain poured down in sheets and the National Weather Service had issued a tornado warning. But none of that stopped the thousands of attendees from crowding into the seats. Mac looked around and saw a few other invaders, Ori and John among them. Facing the podium, Mac sat to the right, near the front. The air hung heavy with a sense of foreboding as King's voice reverberated through the sanctuary. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Deafening applause filled the church. Mac clapped too, his spirit soaring with the audience's cascading cheers and shouts. He believed it. Black folks would get to the promised land. And what was this promised land? This place he'd striven for all his life? Before the police academy and the army? Wasn't it the place he'd daydreamed about as a young boy? Where he could have a good job and live in the house with the big windows, looking out on the world? It was a place where it didn't take so much struggle to get what you earned. Where the Raymonds and Clarks and Loeb's of the world didn't have so much power over people. Some might have found his presence there ironic, sitting among people fighting for changes that would benefit him, but as an agent of the forces opposing those changes. But he didn't get tangled up in the seeming contradictions. To make the job work, he had to think in terms of clear demarcations, not ambiguities. His mission was to investigate the invaders. Nothing more and nothing less. So I love that scene just because it's incredibly written and also because I think it gives a window into this ability to survive that comes from compartmentalizing. I'm wondering what you think about his need to think in terms of those clear demarcations and if that benefited him and and sort of how how he's gone forward with those demarcations processing what happened. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a survival skill. And I think it's something that would have come into play for him from the earliest living in Jim Crow, Mississippi and having to compartmentalize what folks face in that society versus, you know, what his dreams and aspirations were and not letting all of that oppression and all of that dehumanization sort of flow over into his efforts and his strivings, you know, trying to grow and learn and become who he could become, striving for education, because he had to kind of close off these pieces of reality in order to go forward. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, moving through the military where you follow the orders, you do what you're supposed to do. And then once you serve your time, you come out, then you kind of go from there. But having to compartmentalize your job and your duties from the way that you feel. And then, you know, going into law enforcement, there's certainly going to be some compartmentalization, notwithstanding the undercover work that he ultimately had to do, where he explicitly had to create this other identity. But even before that, one of the first things that happens, he is involved in a shooting of mm -hmm. a suspected car thief. Um, it's a young Black man, actually young teenager. And so he is able to apprehend this suspect and bring him back, you know, to these waiting police officers in the parking lot of this strip mall. And one of the white officers takes the, the young boy and, and smacks him, you know, like hits him. And this boy has been shot. And my father is so outraged by this brutality. But at the same time, he realizes that there's nothing in this moment that he can do to remedy it. So, you know, there's a compartmentalization that has to happen there. Like he has to sort of separate his personal feelings about the things going on around him from the job that he's being asked to do and really kind of weighing whether, you know, what I am seeing is worth raising it and potentially taking me out of play to ultimately do some good in this role as a Black police officer. And so, you know, this compartmentalization becomes explicit in this undercover role. But, I mean, I think it's something that carries through even once his cover's blown and um, he's out from undercover and ultimately is a vice and narcotics officer and then becomes... An intelligence officer, you know, with the Central Intelligence Agency. Once again, you're compartmentalizing your life for national security reasons. But you've got to do that. And so I think that it served him in the sense that it helped him to survive and it helped him to persist and ultimately do some good and do some harm reduction in the institutions that he was a part of. But there was a huge cost to pay. There was a price for that splitting of oneself. And um, so much was lost in terms of identity, in terms of relationship with his loved ones. And so, you know, it's it's a very fraught uh, thing as a phenomenon. Yeah, I I think, you know, what what's so interesting about how how this story came into play and you know deciding to write the book you know you also have an incredible drive you know you you have had this amazing career you've passed the bar as you mentioned twice you you know worked in corporate law your husband 
also, right? That's how this all sort of came about in this crazy chain of events, this book at least, and that your father, I think, in an attempt to maybe process what had happened and your questions over the years delivers you this many pages of, of writing that he wrote, remembering everything that had happened to him and telling you what had happened. And you are, your husband is stuck in Nigeria where the family is living. Ola is exploding. You're, you're stuck in Lake Tahoe in a vacation house that you guys have while he's in Nigeria. And you, after a, an attempt to read the story previously, which was just too painful for you, you really dive into it. And I think what I, I loved so much about this book is it's so clear how much you care about him and wanting to tell his story for him. Can you talk a little bit about what happened as you started kind of started to piece the story together and then the sort of the echoes and questions that have lingered around MLK's assassination and who who is responsible and the sort of ways that that's intertwined in the book as well. Yes, I had to start with these notes that my father sent me, 17 pages of notes after I asked him to tell me about the assassination and what his experience was with that. And also just, you know, his childhood, his, his upbringing, which he never talked about that as well. And so, you know, I get these notes in 2010 and I start reading and I cannot get past page three because it's so painful and there's just so much. And I mean, I never made it out of Tibbs, Mississippi in the notes. And I knew that there's going to be a lot more of this kind of thing. And we haven't even gotten anywhere near the assassination. And I just thought, you know, I... I just do not have the wherewithal to plod through this, to continue through this. You know, and looking back, I, I, I realize now I was afraid of what I was going to have to feel in engaging with this story. So I put them aside for five years, you know, speaking of compartmentalization, but <laughs> came back to the notes. And once I read through them, I had so many questions. And so that's when I began the process of unpacking it with my father beginning in late 2015 you know we met face to face and had a couple days of interviews which i recorded and thus began the years long process of interviewing him asking more and more questions getting him to tell me these stories and coming back and so putting together all these pieces was it was Really, it was it was a process that I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to do because if my father weren't willing to tell the story and weren't around to tell the story, then it would be lost to history. At the same time, it was a really difficult and painful process because of the trauma contained in the story. The assassination, of course, but just, you know, other painful episodes and having to rehash those and really kind of opening wounds in a way. But this was a process of cleaning those wounds. So, you know, it was a very valuable process. But I can just hear when I go back and listen to some of those recordings and my my interactions with my dad, just sometimes it's really kind of fun and easy. And, you know, you can hear that we're getting to know each other better as the years go on. And sometimes it's really tough, like it's tense. He's getting frustrated. I'm getting frustrated. I'm kind of walking on eggshells, but then realizing like, I'm not going to get anywhere if I continue to walk on eggshells. And so, you know, there's a little bit of that tension there. 
but it really was it it was you know people say a labor of love it's a little bit trite but it truly was i mean when i think about all the fear that i had of the story and you know being that teenager who did not want to be connected with these events in any way and what it took to overcome that fear and the great silences around my father's experiences in his life it really did take that powerful love i think that you know, it it was the love that cast out the fear, to paraphrase the saying, but it's put us now in a place that I don't think we could ever have been had we not gone through this process and walked through the story. And now, you know, as, as far as the conspiracy theories go, you know, it's really interesting because I did have to engage with those theories, which is profoundly painful and just, it's just really scary to me. And it's, even now, you know, when I read about my father and people perhaps trying to insinuate this or that, it's sort of like my heart still goes in my throat. But now that I have this narrative, I have something to counteract those conspiracy theories, which it's interesting because, of course, those conspiracy theories are still out there. Right. I haven't gotten nearly the blowback that I was really bracing myself for when I published the book. I thought, oh, my goodness, now, you know, the wolves are coming. But it really hasn't been bad. I mean, readers have engaged with this book and this story in such a beautiful way and connected with it. And it's just been so authentic and and so gratifying. And so I really haven't had people say, oh, you're lying, <laughs> you know, what about this and this and this? But the stories are still out there. And of course, social media now, of course, just has created such a fertile ground for conspiracies, for misinformation and for disinformation. But I stand on the truth. And I think that the response to those theories is this book. And I think that the process of going through this narrative with my father afforded him an opportunity to really process everything he's been through and what's been said about it and the ways in which, you know, he has been sort of cast, you know, by various folks. And again, back to this idea of compartmentalization, I think that he really hadn't faced that until we started working on the book. He just kind of thought, well, those people are over here. They can believe whatever they want to believe. I'm still going to go about my business and go about my life. And yes, that is a survival technique, but there's also a cost to not processing, you know, not facing certain realities that, you know, whether you like it or not, they do impact your life. And so I think that the process of just talking through the stories with me, I think has helped my father to really get to a place of peace, I think peace with his life, what has happened, and whatever anybody else wants to say about it, you know, peace with the idea that the truth is just as available as all these conspiracy theories. Like if you Google his name now, this is going to come up before the conspiracy stuff. Right. And the, the conspiracy stuff for people who aren't familiar is that your you know, that the Memphis police was was behind it, that your father was was part of the operation, that the FBI was involved, obviously. And and there's a, a, a quote unquote source who claims that he saw your father talking about it with the FBI, with other police officers, which has been proven to be totally incorrect. And part of your book 
dispels a lot of these these question marks. But I I was shocked to know I, I had no idea that the Department of Justice had looked into this in the 90s, that your dad had to take a polygraph test. I really enjoyed that you talked about how upsetting that was that he had to go through the assassination and then 30 years later have the Department of Justice come back and say, really, you know, and and ask him again to to tell the story and to doubt him. And what I love is how you end the book in talking about the fact that you wanted to do this to tell your father's story with care, because in the words of a person who is white, it might come across as storytelling colonialism. Tell me a little more about that concept of storytelling colonialism, because I just I love that. And I think it's so important what you're, you're describing at the end. Storytelling colonialism. Yes. And it's sort of like I picture it kind of like different colonial powers went into the continent of Africa and kind of carved it up and started mining the resources and taking people, stealing people. I feel like today, a lot of the stories of marginalized people, all too often, you know, they get mined for content without care, without any compensation to the people who actually experience those stories, who live with the ramification of those stories. You know, marginalized people very often are even barred from telling their own stories or at least being heard from being given a platform to tell their own stories. We are often not accorded the same credibility as a white storyteller of the same story would get. And it's a systemic problem. It's a cultural and social issue that flows out of systemic racism that we face today and just structural issues in, in place, you know, and in publishing in particular. I mean, this is no secret that Black writers are just often not given the same advances are you know, have a hard time you know even getting an agent getting published and there are very well documented barriers to that and so i was very determined in telling this story that it would be told with care it would be told by someone who you know pardon the phrase has skin in the game this is not going to be some kind of sensationalized version of events and I felt that also there needs to be consent. I think that it's it's important to consider, at least to me as a writer, what stories are even mine to tell? I don't think that every story out there in the world that I come upon is my story to tell. That's my position. Other folks might feel differently, but it was important for me to have my father's consent. A lot of this book is my story, but mm -hmm. a lot of it's his as well. And so I was not going to come into this and just kind of smash and grab, just like tell everything I could get my hands on. It was important to have his partnership. And he was very open and willing to provide that partnership. And so, yes, I just think that it's very important for folks, you know, marginalized people, our own voices to be heard and telling our own stories. Absolutely. You mentioned, you know, now that the book is out, that, that you got to know your dad a little more and just through all of the interviews that you did and and uh, piecing everything together. But also you talk about it's your story. It's the story of Memphis at the time. It's the story of 
the ways that poverty works to keep people immobilized. Your dad must be so proud of you and of the book. What are his his thoughts or what are, you know, what's going on with him these days? <laughs> the dad is thrilled. <laughs> he is like my greatest cheerleader. He's really, not only is he pleased with the book, one of the last questions I asked him in this seven-year-long process of interviews was, is there anything else other than what's in this book manuscript that he had a chance to read? And he said, everything that I have to say is in this book. So he's very pleased. And, you know, everything that I do with respect to the book, you know, podcasts, for example, any kind of events, he's right there. He doesn't personally go. He lives across the country from me, but he's always listening and providing feedback. And, um, he he is proud and I'm proud of him. And I think it's just great for him to hear me say that I am proud of him. You know, now that I have the story, I have the context and I see the ways in which he navigated these very difficult situations he was in with such honor and um, such faith. I'm proud of him. And he knows that. And I just think he feels he feels a sense of relief to have the truth out there. And I think he must feel some pride in himself, too, to just reflect back on what he came through and what he was able to do with the cards he was dealt. Thank you so much for coming on, Letta. This was amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about The Kneeling Man. Everybody go read it. It's incredible. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. It has been wonderful talking the Neely Man with you and, and such a pleasure. And uh, again, you know, uh, an honor to uh, to be on this podcast. An honor to have you. Thank you. This podcast was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think. <laughs>